Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today, I'm very happy to welcome back for a second time, my friend, Chesky Ramos. We're going to talk about his Sad Fat Luck trilogy of albums, as well as his brand new release, This Guitar Was Stolen Along With Years Of Our Lives, containing what I think is the song of the year, 2020 BC. We're also going to talk about his upcoming work with the Fat Records crew. This is Chesky Ramos. See it's good to see your face, man. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a while. When we last spoke, Sad Fat Luck was a finished nine-song album. And mm-hmm. you were saying, like, oh, yeah, it's ready to go. It's about ready to come out. And then the booklet explains that, you know, after some personal tragedies with losing some loved ones, that you ended up writing a bunch more and actually having to get the album kind of remixed, remastered, new artwork, all this stuff, and put out. It's crazy to look at that change, and how do you go from nine songs to 34 songs between these two records that dropped (laughs) that one spring-summer period all back-to-back? I mean, what was that period like? I think it was a reaction to some key deaths of friends. I had kind of like a manic break, I feel. And I started just writing, 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 creating, creating, creating. Yeah, it's almost like a blur even making some of that stuff. It was just this constant process of creation. Yeah. The key songs I remember making for Sad Fat Luck was the song Sad Fat Luck, the song Daybreak, the song Sans Soleil. I remember making those three songs at the in the same time period basically yeah and that was added to finish up the first album the idea of the trilogy came only after that i started making songs that were having conversations with other songs yeah electrocardiographs as well it ended up being sort of a response to other songs in another era and i don't know i don't know it happened really quickly at some point after fucking like a solid chunk of time of not being able to write anything. Yeah. I mean, I've had those experiences where, you know, I'm not the kind of writer that'll sit down every day just for the exercise of doing it. I'm definitely the kind of person that I'll be ruminating on something in my head. And then one day I'll have to sit down and get it out, you know, and, yeah, that's same, much more same. my. So, yeah, I think it was a lot of that. It was a lot of processing all these records, but I'd say San Soleil especially was like this vomiting of emotion. Yeah, and you could hear it. I mean, it's kind of all over the place, and it's um, it's the rawest record I've ever made. Probably, it kind of had less rules than anything else. Yeah, and I just knew that it was a reaction to the first record which is Sad Fat Luck. Well, let's talk about Sad Fat Luck, because on the show last time, you were kind of trying to describe it a little bit before anyone had heard it, and we talked a little bit about, like, P.O.S.'s turn from Never Better to We Don't Even Live Here, and you had said, this is a quote, in a way, this is the most pop record I've ever made, and you were kind of like, I think a lot of people will buy into this change, but there will definitely be some who are thrown off by it. It's definitely a curveball. You know, the second track, 
you've got auto tune and trap hats and mm-hmm. you know almost no semblance of the sonic palette that you've used on past records was that a change that you were going for or was it something that factor was trying to push boundaries in and experiment with i think both of us we were just we follow modern music or whatever it is you know pop music pop rap um we like shit like that i think we were both listening to quite a bit of stuff in that realm and we hadn't really dabbled in it i knew that broken bone ballads before that i i had purposely stayed away from synth type sounds it's yeah. actually part of the rule the, the sonic rule of that album i tend to have little rules for myself on broken bone ballads there's really like one song with synths on it factor even had to convince me to put that on the record was that beyond the end it's beyond the end yeah yeah <laughs> listen carefully <laughs> yeah uh his production was kind of going in that direction i had been listening to stuff that was a little more modern but i also wanted my shit to be taken a little i don't know maybe accepted into a realm where it could fit in next to other modern hip-hop you know what i mean like where it could sonically not sound like it's so underground yeah um but still with my content and my my melodies and my lyricism so that was in a way it was it was definitely on purpose i think it started with the gospel when we made the gospel mm-hmm. that kind of opened that door we had been listening to a lot of like frank ocean and stuff like that on tour that was a big part of it and i, I like the juxtaposition i like being able to do something that's sounds modern and trappy even and then just hitting with a super raw track like scattered track like electrocardiographs yeah i love that one like the kind of the middle section of that record really hits me with that song and say no more and i think the standout on this record is take it all back you know this is a yeah take it all back's another one we made early on take it all back kind of set the tone for what the record could be and obviously it starts with a fairly modern sound and hip-hop beat i think that's what opened that door there was nothing on broken bone balance that even sounded anything close to that yeah as far as beats and stuff, so. now if anyone's not familiar with that song specifically this is it's basically a four-part suite that's jammed into maybe four and a half minutes it's not super long but the fact that you kind of shift through all your different styles within and do it like it could be really abrasive and abrupt and awkward but it works really really well and i wonder was that a concept that you had or did that just oh man when we get to this part what if we try that i mean what was it part of the process or was that like wow i have an idea of how to conceptualize this bigger piece of music the concept was that i wanted to make a a seven inch Mm. and i wanted to fit as much as i could on each side so i was like okay here's i've got these little pieces of songs i had that punk kind of part the head in a lion's mouth i had that part written i had the first rap written and i was like okay we can get one side of this seven inch could be four minutes long and the second side could be six minutes long yeah it was just for fun we're just trying to put it together like that it was like every minute there'd be a change if you look at it, it's pretty much a four-minute song, but it has 
at the end now it has some scattered like synths and slow down vocals at the end yeah so it goes over four minutes <laughs> but it's pretty much supposed to be called four minutes and there was another one i was going to be called six minutes <laughs> well it's a it's an impressive so, piece man it really is i remember seeing a video of you am i mistaken or did you do like uh one of those npr tiny desk things it was a fistful of vinyl oh okay okay it's in la there's um some more punk centric radio show kxlu okay yeah okay. i remember seeing that They're at the really time cool and, uh just Alec being blown away it's a dj really cool it's funny you were one of the people, and there were several, who told me, like, hey, you know, you got this reputation that you, you know, kind of a workhorse or whatever, but you put out too much shit too often, right? And so while I was actually in the process of kind of focusing all of that on one big double album and really slowing down and putting all that energy in one place, then you dropped two in a row within a couple of months. Now... Knowing that the third part of this trilogy wasn't ready yet, is there a different relationship between those first two? Or I guess, what was the urgency for dropping Sans Soleil so quickly? Oh, I thought the third one was finished. Okay. That's the thing. I thought it was done. You know, it's very possible that it's finished already. We got a little delayed with Sans Soleil as far as scheduling because I was on tour all the time. I wanted it to come out like Sad Fed Left and two months later than two months after that. And then yeah. it was done. But um it didn't and we did I didn't have a chance to go back and finish bring us to head of Francisco Falls with, with Factor. Mm -hmm. I just was on tour trying to survive financially. Kind of fell into a rut financially as well right before pandemic hit. That was all part of the reason I couldn't finish that record. Yeah. Otherwise, I would have put it out. And the only reason I would have put it all out so quickly is because I wanted to just be done with the Chesky name. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I, I would have just waited. I really just wanted to um, put it out as a trilogy. wanted to give some people some breathing room between them so they could kind of ingest it and take it in. I realized pretty quickly that putting out Sans Soleil as quickly as I did after Safat Look people didn't re realize it came out, you know? Yeah. So I realized pretty quickly that people did not ingest it properly, that it came out too fast. Exactly what I was worried about or what I probably recommended to you. Yeah. It was happening yeah. to me. As much as I wanted to just be like, all right, I'm just going to put the shit out. It didn't work. Aside from the people who purchased the trilogy, I had like this allegiance to them, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because they pre-ordered all three of the vinyl. Oh, so, okay. That was the thing that had me feeling like shit that I couldn't, that I didn't finish it in time, which is part of the reason I finished this album right gotcha. and gave it away. Yeah, because I just felt like it's been two years since I should have put out "Bring Us Ahead of Francisco Falls" the third, the third one. Yeah, it's been two years exactly. It was supposed to be November fourth, two thousand nineteen, mm -hmm. and I still haven't been back to Canada. And I tried to mix stuff with Factor online and do the things and it just doesn't feel right we just don't get the tracks the way they, they need to be when we're in the room together and we're getting really nitpicky and detailed about mixes it's just a different thing yeah especially totally. when i'm working with him it's like there's just so much shit that 
we're not going to catch on Zoom or yeah. whatever. It's not fair to the project to just put it out as demos or whatever. So I haven't felt like it's done yet. I have about 44 tracks for it. Wow. So, so that yeah. that's going to be a, a double album in and of itself? It'll be a double album. Wow. Yeah. It'll be the last Chesky album, period. And um, it's got to be good. I'm not going to put that out if it's not ready. So I put out This Guitar Was Stolen as a sort of a thank you for your patience. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me pause here for a second, though, because it's very interesting to be talking about, okay, we're retiring the name. It's going to be the last Chesky album. This series is going to be the last Chesky album. But again, we go from a nine-song record, now it's 13. Then we go, we drop a 21-track album. Then the third part of this trilogy is 44 songs. Plus, we have this new one that just came out. So how is it that you are at your most prolific, inarguably, and yet feel the need for a complete change? It's not about lacking creativity or stopping um, artistry. It's about ending expectations of me. Does that make sense? I think for quite a while, there were expectations put on what my music should sound like or what I should do under this name. When, as you know, like you as well, we make all types of music. Yeah. And I just, it's very liberating to be able to be like, no, I'm just going to start a new project and kind of start anew. And um, there'll be no expectations attached to that. I've always kind of respected people like Blake from Jawbreaker or Pat the Bunny or Mike Patton who could go and just be like, okay, well, this is me as well, but it's another name. It's another thing. You thought this was going to be Mr. Bungle? No, it's not. It's yeah. going to be Lovage, and it's going to sound like this. And it's still me. It's just not going to be what you expect from Chesky and you after don't, this. In your opinion, those things do not coexist. You can't have these other projects and Chesky. You need the full, the full cutoff in order to feel that freedom. Another part of it is to make a discography I'm really, really proud of and not keep milking one thing or one sound. Or, mm. I just look at it as a whole piece of art, like the whole discography. That makes sense. Um, you know, I love certain bands like Guided by Voices, right? Where they have like endless albums, like 50 albums or some shit. But I don't listen to a lot of their albums. So maybe I'll check out yeah. some of their stuff. But I, I can't claim to know every single Guided by Voices album. You know what I mean? I go back to a partial discography. I think I want to keep my discography pretty tight. Yeah. Something someone could go from beginning to end and kind of ingest without like skipping too much. Yeah. I think this is about as long as I want to go. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's fair. I want to ask about the title, Sans Soleil, but probably not in the way that you're thinking. It reminded me of Propagandi, for example. They released the album Supporting Cast. And on that album is the song Potemkin City Limits, which was the name mm -hmm. of their previous album. So Sad Fat Luck has the title track from the successor. Yeah. And you mentioned that these albums are referential and they, and they, they kind of uh, have a give and take between each other. I'm just curious as to what that... Like if you had that intent while you were finishing Sad Fat Luck or if that was something that kind of just came later by accident. 
Yeah, I think Sansoleil was the last piece of Sad Fat Luck, right? And it opened up like a whole new world as far as... It was the most clearly written song I'd ever written about loss. It's also a documentary film that I really love. It's by a French director called Chris Marker. Mm-hmm. And it's a travel log. But it's like this existentialist travel log. I, re- I really recommend watching it if you ever have a chance. And if you have patience, because it's kind of long. <laughs> but um, I figured if I'm going to do a eulogy to my past... So Sans Soleil jumps through different eras of my musical upbringing. Yeah. From underground hip-hop to grunge to fucking everything I've done in between is kind of showcased on this one record, right? Yeah. Um, A lot of eras of my musical upbringing. So I looked at it as a travelogue slash eulogy, and I thought that name would be the most uh, appropriate for it. There's a lot of references, not just to Sad Fat Luck. There's tons of references scattered throughout the record to my influences. Yeah. So there'll be a reference to the Pixies, for instance, and then a reference to of Mexican descent and Project Blowed, and then there'll be a reference to having Yoni from Anacon rework electrocardiographs. Is a reference as well. Like having him on there is a is purposeful. It's like all of it is just a reference to my upbringing musically. Yeah, if that makes sense. So it's kind of like a travelogue jumping through the history of my music work. Yeah, I think it makes even more sense having reread all of the liner notes that come along with it. Because I mean, there's a lot in there. I mean, that's like a condensed autobiography, really. I mean, it, you cover so much ground of you know how you became this person today and um sonically you mentioned it was a reaction to sad fat luck calling it incesticide versus nevermind or robin the hood versus sublime and i thought robin the hood is the best example because as you're talking yeah, about that is the best example these and, little most homages don't know that record yeah so i just figured like you know but because it has but, this yeah. mixtape format where you're using these little vignettes and even these little kind of like ironic acoustic versions of big famous pop songs and stuff like that that are that are just kind of creating a world fragment by fragment. It's like a, a collage piece. It really is. Exactly. And I think Robin the Hood, I went back to that record around that time and I was like, I want to make something like this. Like they made this after 40 Ounces to Freedom had exploded in California. Yeah. You know what I mean? So Robin the Hood is like this reaction to that. Like, oh yeah, you think we're fucking selling out? Watch this. We're going to do a four-track collage album. Yeah. And it's like the most, it's a bizarre little record. I love it though. Yeah. And yeah, I think that had a big influence on me um, when I made San Soleil. And I knew it would be this record that, you know, maybe it would be the least talked about. But for some people, it may be the best, you know, you know, it's just turned out to be that way. Like some people who really, really fucking love it. They just, they love it because they, they get it. A lot of people don't get it. I love Robin the Hood. I, I fucking always talk about how Sublime is underrated because of that. They might have amazing hits and, you know, party songs or whatever, but. Nah, it's the experimentation, really, you know. 
Yeah, the experimentation, the rawness of that record. Think about Pool Shark. Did he really have to do two versions of Pool Shark on that record? Yeah. You know, full-on punk version followed by full-on acoustic version. It's like this, like, real calculated, real thought-out collage work where it's like, here, I'm going to repeat this for you so you fucking understand yeah. my pain. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, because live they would play it half and half. And a lot of their shit was like referential to their influences, right? Yeah. So in that same way, that's yep. what Sansole is for me. I think that talking about those kind of reaction albums, that really strikes a chord with me because I am 36, so I wasn't exposed first to Nevermind and Dookie and Punk and Drublick and those first albums. I was exposed first to In Utero, and Heavy Petting Zoo, right? And those second albums, Insomniac, all those albums that were a little bit uh, a little bit nastier, a little bit gnarlier, that were like, fuck you, we're not just going to do the thing that you want us to do, you know? Yeah, and those are some of my favorites, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. I have a huge soft and spot I mean, for that. And I mean, here's a whole other thing that I failed to tell you. I turned 40 this year, right? Yes. I really wanted to wrap shit up by the time I turned 40. <laughs> yeah. I really did. Yeah. I was like, oh, that'd be cool. The years, my age is 20 to 40 years old, and that's a wrap. Yeah. That's a wrap. That's the whole discography of what Chesky music is. Um, we know I was early 20s when Fake Flowers came out. So what you're hearing on Fake Flowers is me around 18 to 20 years old. And what you're hearing on my last records is going to be me around 40 years old or 39 to 41 years old. Yeah. So it's about 20 years. And that, like, that's that snapshot. I like that. There's a song on this album called Red Emma that reminds me a bit of when Brian Wilson wrote Caroline No. And he says, where did your long hair go? Where is the girl I used to know? Being a very referential album, I just wondered, was that a through line for you at all? It's in one of my favorite albums of all time. Yeah. Pet Sounds, yeah. Um, I don't know. I do have to say about that song, though, ooh, I don't necessarily want to speak about every piece of that experience, but I was with Ross Norton, Kid Dead, Rest in Peace. He just passed away a couple months ago Yeah, in uh, Nashville. And we were just fucking around in the studio, and that song came to me. He had like a shitty electric guitar sitting around his room, and I just, I literally just wrote that song on the spot. Wow. And he recorded it for me, and that's the version you hear. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I do think Brian Wilson's one of my favorite songwriters, and uh, I studied a lot of stuff, so I wouldn't be that surprised. But yeah, it's kind of in that same. It's the same idea about caring for someone so much, even after you've left their lives. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, even after you've left the relationship, caring for them a lot and just, it's kind of hard. It, actually, it's kind of like breaking me up even thinking about Yeah, man, don't, don't worry about it. Here's yeah. what I wanted to really ask about that, because I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Ross, because I was like, oh, man, this song really hits me, right? And I, and I start going to that page in the book, because I was reading the essays while I was listening. And I pulled up that page and I was like, oh, wow, you recorded this at his place. And I thought for an album that's all about, you know, there's so many moments of eulogizing 
people who we've lost here. I've written my fair share of those kind of tribute songs as well to people who are no longer here. And I wonder if you share sort of my romanticized view of music and how we can live on through our creations a little bit. Like for me, I think that's a little bit of why I do it. One, it helps me process these things, but also it's just a thing that when you want to think about a person, you can pull this up and they'll just always be there in some way. You know, is that something yeah, that you absolutely. share? Absolutely. I mean, that's the whole of, the, of that record and the new guitar record. It's like I write in the liner notes of this new album, guitars have been stolen from me, but they're still on record. Yeah. And what that means to me is that not everything can be stolen from you. You know, they still live on in records. Uh, Sans Soleil is a collection of snapshots, a travelogue of life. I, I look at all of the records I've made as just snapshots of periods of my life. Yeah. Sans Soleil is specifically very self-aware and, um, aware of its place amongst the collections of snapshots. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I do romanticize music in that way. I do feel like, you know, they hate Francisco Faults is this version of me, this era of my life recorded. Yeah. Carved into stone in some way. Um, yeah, these songs remind me of people directly. These songs remind me of moments directly around me of periods in my life of of development yeah you feel the same as you i think sometimes while i'm making an album with somebody or even just talking about the process one thing i like to point out is just the word record you know we are in a way documenting whether it's this song this period in your life this feeling, whatever it is. But I like to sometimes just think in those terms because it's easy to get caught up in the minutia and all the little details and, and making it perfect. And sometimes for me, I got to think like, but is it real? Does it show, you know, like, does it just show the thing that we're trying to express here? And sometimes that's more important, you know? Exactly. I think that was kind of a, I remember showing some of these songs to Radical Face when I was wrapping up the collage of what Sans Soleil is. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll re-record some of these voice memo tracks. And he's like, no, 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 no. That represents exactly <laughs> what it needs to. Yeah. Leave it as a voice memo. That sounds great. And this is a person who's like a top-notch mixing engineer and does shit for movies. And Yeah. And he was like, no, no, no. It represents exactly what it should. Keep the moment. You know, and he kind of helped me move on with that project and be like, okay, I'm going to let this go. I don't have to make this sound all perfect because, first of all, look at your earliest work. That shit was done on like eight tracks and stuff, you know, like it's a sort of also a reference to the rawness of that. So. It's strange because when I re-listened to our, our past episode, there was a, a reference to this person as well. But in what you just said about keeping those voice memos, it reminds me of the liner notes for Christina Aguilera's second album when she was <laughs> when she was trying to break out of that, right? And she did Stripped and it was, you know, a totally different thing and trying to empower herself and take risks and challenge expectations. And she wrote in there that 
Linda Perry had to convince her to keep the scratch tracks and release that. Like on the big singles for that record, they're the scratch tracks. And I was like, man, beautiful. That's, stuff. Yeah, okay. yeah. Like that one, and I think Voice Within. Um, but yeah, all those really like heartfelt songs that changed her whole career. Linda was like, no, 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 we're not redoing that. Are you crazy? Like there's so much heart in that first time. That's what we're using. And yeah. yeah, that just came back to me as you were talking about it. Of like, those can be the most special, memorable songs, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's something about letting that go that's so liberating. I did feel very liberated by making that record. Just, I don't know if you notice it, but, you know, a lot of times I'm very, very meticulous when it comes to structuring an album. Yeah. Even if it sounds like, oh, that sounds kind of wild. It's there on purpose, kind of. That record, it was more like concept, concept, concept on top of meticulous engineering yeah, and meticulous sculpting. It was more like stick to the concept, build the concept. And uh, it was more like conceptual art. I'm happy I did it. <laughs> yeah. Even if it, it just it was very liberating, so... Well, and speaking yeah. of being very conceptual, it's worth mentioning, and I didn't make notes about this, I didn't really look into who is responsible here, but the artwork on both of these projects being multi-layered and very unique for each one. I mean, the, the way that they interact with each other, the pieces of the packaging is really, really striking. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, that's um, Andy McAlpine is a designer. He's based out of Amsterdam. And he's been a fan, a supporter of just underground hip-hop shit mostly. And also, I mean, all all kinds of music for so many years. But he reached out. I remember I was on tour with Scotty Sixo, rest in peace, and MC Homeless. And they did like a last-minute show for us in Amsterdam. We got to meet. We became friendly. And we just became homies and started just talking a lot he was like <laughs> he's putting his name in the hat to design whatever my next project was yeah and so i gave him a shot we started working together on posters and things here and there and i really liked his style i had a very specific idea for sad fat luck which is what you see mm -hmm. because it's a reference to the movie Sans soleil okay so um there's a scene in Sans soleil the documentary where there's a temple of luck cats in japan and one of them is missing its paw yeah instantly i think that's that one unlucky cat in the sea of luck cats yeah and i wanted to make it even less lucky <laughs> to with represent the, with the arrows of my life <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i was like let's fuck him up let's shoot him with arrows <laughs> let's give him a black eye let's... yeah <laughs> and then one day i had some breakthrough in the morning i was like Hear me out, Andy. We got to make it so there's an O-card, a translucent O-card, print the cat on top of it, and all its guts and, and bones will be underneath. It's pretty amazing. Uh, and he did just an incredible job. It's pretty awesome. So. And then with Sans Soleil, it again also has this sort of interactive component to it as, as the booklet has its own, could be a, a cover by itself with that collage work, and then this really vivid bright color packaging with the the negative space there 
Was that yeah. the same designer? Same designer, yeah. Okay. Same designer. Um, he's doing all three. He did the cover to the guitar one as well. Yeah, so I got to say, so the CD version of Sansole, that's the proper color that it was supposed to be. The manufacturer fucked up on the vinyl oh. and made it a different orange, and they made it a different orange on the tape, and we were pretty upset about that. The proper color is that, like, sherbet fucking... <laughs> yeah whatever that orange is uh, peach orange that neon whatever that is that's the proper color yeah it yeah, stands we out to do something that was referential if you look at the collage inside every little piece in there has meaning it refers to songs from Seth that luck and songs from Sansoleil and it ties them together like a weird web again i love the liner notes because both of the quotes that i pulled about each record we're in the other record. <laughs> I, I just like how it's all tied together. Yeah, they're all wrapped together in a web. And the third one is to some degree as well. We'll see. <laughs> well, oh. I wanted to, of course, talk to you about the new album because this is, this is why we were chatting yesterday. This guitar was stolen along with Years of Our Lives. And you talked a little bit about the title, but this album just hit me instantly the thing i liked about elm street for example is that it felt like the intensity the passion of your live show and this record really translates that as well just right away the vocals on long shot are just cutting right through me of like oh my god yeah this is this is my friend chesky you know because like sometimes we're about the big production or we're about the way we're affecting the music, right? And this one, it just has such a, a great direct approach that it just knocked me right over. Yeah, I think um, there's a few reasons why I just put it out like, like I did. Yeah. You know, part of the reason is that I really was shitty for the November 4th date because I had told people November 4th, 2019. Yeah. Another reason is that I just... I didn't want it to sit. I wanted, I felt like as much as I worked on this record and did a lot in some versions, did a lot of versions of the same song for myself to hear, I wanted to just capture energy. Yeah. You know what I mean? When I stuck to a version, it's because it captured the energy that made sense for that song. So I also want to just put it out there and for, for people to feel the energy as quickly as they could. And we have that privilege with modernity that we could just go and like put an album out tomorrow, you know, when yeah. it's done. It was literally mastered two days ago or three days ago. <laughs> wow. I just put it out yesterday. So, so talking about energy, are you recording your vocals and guitars simultaneously just for that live feel or are you multi-tracking those? Um, it was mostly done live. Yeah. A lot of times I did both just to see which felt better. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was a huge pain in the ass to these guys. <laughs> and I like, I would go in there and I'd be like, all right, I'm going to take an hour and I'm going to do like seven songs. And then I'll come back next week and take an hour and do seven songs. I'll come back <laughs> next week, take an hour and do seven songs. It's like a process like that. Yeah. And then I'll be like, here, I'm going to take an hour and do seven guitar tracks and then, and then do some vocal dubs on top. It's about half and half. I do my shit the same way, actually, where 
It'll be like, all right, today we're doing guitars. I'm going to play all of them in a row, and then I'm going to set up the other amp and play all of them in a row again. Like, I just like to dive in and fucking do it, you know, while you're feeling it. Yeah, it was kind of like this thing where it was trying to capture moments. That's all I cared about. It wasn't about the exact perfection of the playing. It was like I wanted to capture the voice breaking at the right time. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, it's not like I couldn't perform it, right? There's probably seven versions of the same song performed just fine. Yeah. But if the voice wasn't breaking or the intonation didn't quite feel raw, I didn't keep it. Yeah. So it was about just trying to capture energy and not go back and back and back and try to dub it. It's more about like if it, if I don't get it in these few takes and I'm not I'm gonna move away. Yeah. Come back to it some other time. Uh, in fact, with Not Off, which was one of them... That's the kind of punk rock one, right? Yeah, it was one of the more difficult ones to capture because I was like, there was versions of it where I sang it kind of like perfectly and clean and high-pitched and kind of like real clean. And I was like, that's not right. And there was versions of it and I sang it real punky and really, really, really raw, like with my lost voice. And that didn't feel right. It was about, and even though they were all kind of right, yeah. it was just about like what version of this do you want to put into the world? And I got, I got pretty picky about that. It was more like what version of this energy do you want to put out there? And in some cases like 2020 BC, it was the first take live. Yeah. You know, I only did that song twice ever in the studio. We did it first take. I got it. And then I was like, let's do it one more time just to make sure we we don't do it better. And we didn't. So that's insane. uh, That song, if anyone hasn't heard it yet, this is an eight minute epic that when you dropped it i don't know a week ago or something i just happened to catch the post and pulled it up and was like oh this is a long one and i was like okay well let's let's we'll try it out you know for a second i was i can't even remember what i was doing i was probably editing the podcast or like i was in the middle of something and i just happened to see it i was like all right well let's pull it up on the computer we'll listen to it thank you and then it's and then i see how long it is i'm like okay i'm not gonna get through all this right now right it's and like I, a podcast. But I stopped what I was doing entirely. I listened to it three times in a row. And then I watched the old like acoustic demo version. And then I listened to this, this new one again. And so I listened to that shit five times in a row. And I don't do that. I will listen to an album front to back. I, I, I will not put a song on repeat. I do not cherry pick a song. But that is just... What I wrote in my notes here is that it's just an astonishing composition. I think what I texted you at the time was like, I know a lot of people conflate length with depth, you know, and they think like, oh, because I made this big, long, fucking bloated record, that means it's important. Like, But no, like, this was every word, every chord felt so urgent and so necessary. It doesn't drag. It doesn't feel like self-aggrandizing or anything it almost takes what you did with take it all back and applies it to the context of an acoustic song you know like okay let's do something with big movements and stuff like this but it's in many ways a more cohesive piece of music you said this took seven months to write is that correct yeah can you take me through that process at all this is really an accomplishment yeah so the whole first part of that song kind of instantly came to me 
That's not quite true. Okay, so I was dabbling, I'd say March 2020, the beginning of March 2020. There was a couple of days when I was home. I started messing with the first riff. Yeah. I came up with like three of the riffs, right? And melodies for the riffs, but yeah. no lyrics. I'd probably have like 10 scratch roughs of just those beginning parts on voice memos. Then fucking COVID hit and I was stuck in LA. And I remember essentially being like, I want to write about. I thought it was very interesting to see all of us in lockdown. Yeah. And all of us kind of following the rules. <laughs> even yeah. though it was just on some like observation shit. Like, oh, they tell us to sit and we're going to sit. Just on some observation shit, I, I started noticing that. Yeah. They throw us a bone, we're going to run for the fucking bone, you know? I was like, okay, I want to talk about the domestication of humans. Yeah. About the control of humans. And that has nothing to do with a political stance, honestly. It was just an observation. And I remember talking to Pat the Bunny about that on the phone. I was like, yeah, like, I've been writing all these words about this concept, this essay, essentially. And I want to fit it into a song. And he's like, that's how I write, too. But he's like, the challenge is, like, breaking it down to the point where it's doesn't sound like you're just babbling a bunch of fucking words you know? yeah yeah so the beginning part i pretty much had the beginning part written by the end of march so anyone absolutely certain that they understand everything even that line it took me like i think i rewrote that five times yeah you know what i mean like just little lines i knew i wanted to write about corporations taking advantage of frontline workers. I know I want, I, there were certain, I, I basically wrote like outlines about shit I wanted to write. Yeah. And then I tried to make them simplify those concepts as much as possible and make them sound decent. I got the beginning parts and then I was completely fucking stuck. I was trying to think about when I figured out the high pitch part for part, what we'll call it part two. <laughs> yeah. Um, part three. I was like super depressed, but I would follow my family to the beach um, when I moved back out to New Haven from L.A. And I started just bringing my guitar there just in case something would come to me. And I started playing the high-pitched part that became the the crowds are growing larger. Yeah. So I pretty much wrote that part at the beach when my family's like out on the ocean and shit. I'm, wow. I'm alone, like in the sand, covered in all black. Yeah. <laughs> just like, okay, nah, writing this song. And, uh, and then I remember going on a kayak and then I started singing this, the part, we are all entrapped by fear. I wrote that being out on a kayak just in my head. I came back to fucking shore as quickly as I could yeah. and put it on a voice memo. So yeah, it took about from March into early fall yeah i'd say from like march to october by october i had finished the song i think something like that that's amazing man and when i say this i'm not trying to say like oh look at me but what i'm trying to say is like when you hear a song that speaks to what you're feeling and thinking already you know or like you kind of feel a kinship with the person that wrote it and the message of like, Oh, I wish I had thought of that or something. But I, you know, I told you, I felt this kinship with a song that I wrote in March, 2020. And I even recently went back 
because we're about to record the album right now for Dead Fucking Serious. And I went back to check, and I had the date. It was finished on March 29th, 2020. And yours is a much more big picture version of this, I think. Mine was really born from me being newly classified an essential worker. And so like the first mm-hmm. first half of it a lot is about that. But this is a band who generally, our records will be 18 songs in 18 minutes. You know, they're very, very short. And I had this idea that when we play live, we'll play five song medleys and we'll do five of those and that's our whole set, right? And we don't stop long enough to click into the next one. It's just on the one we continue the next song, right? And it's just like Ramones. I, I used to see the. I saw the Ramones four times. That's, really? They, don't, they never stopped. Yeah. They never stopped. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no stopping. No talking. And usually when we play live, by the time we finish, people are like, "What the fuck did I just see?" Is so nonstop. They're like, they can't digest it right away. And so my thought for our third record was a lot of people know me for covering The Decline by No Effects. Like, you know, that's a big favorite song of mine. It's a big influence. And I thought, what if I were to take this concept of these medleys and apply that to one song? Like, they done it. They set the precedent, right? I could do that. And so I had this idea for our third record. It was going to be something like that. I'm going to try to take our medleys that we do, but write something with callbacks and enough consistency to make a big song but that was a musical concept what the fuck is that going to be about i don't know and the pandemic hit and it was like the worst anxiety of my entire life and so all these lyrics started coming out of me and before i knew it i had this five minute hardcore song that talks about and they're not even things that i necessarily agree with now but fears i had at that time you know, and talking about like, oh, God, we're going to see riot police in the streets. We did. There's a line in there about like, you know, he's going to delay the election so he doesn't have to leave. He tried to do that. You know, like there's there's all, <laughs> all kinds of fears and anxieties kind of manifested in this one song. And it could not come out because I was an individual and everything's locked down and I have no way to record my band. It's not a rap song I can just do. So to this day, it hasn't come out. And we're finally recording next week, but hearing your song hit me as a person who had already gone through a version of these feelings and tried to make my own statement on it. Like, I just hadn't heard, you know, people make references or whatever to what's going on, but hearing your take on such a big scale in the way that I felt it needed to be said it really connected with me and I know that's a big fucking a lot of baggage in that statement but no that's that's really cool and I mean that's why I had a friend uh, my homie Alex Barnes was like he heard me try it on an Instagram live or something yeah I did it like briefly on the Instagram live with some friends of mine with uh, MC Homeless I think and um my friend Alex Barnes was like, yeah, you got to just put that out now. Yeah. And that's why I did the YouTube video early. Yeah. Because it was like, okay, well, this is done. I think it's done. You know? <laughs> and um, that's why I put it out because I was hoping people were late. I hadn't heard anything like that had really touched upon the shit in that way before. So yeah. it was also just to share and, and connect with people. I love it, man. It, it Again, it really hit me and... 
so much of what I wrote last year has still not seen the light of day and probably won't until next year. And so I have a hunger for music that speaks to that because I'm sort of trapped in this limbo, you know, like you can understand with Bring Me the Head, you know, like of just, oh, it's like, yeah. God, I'm ready to share this with you, but it's, it's so fucking frustrating. It's not there, yeah. you know. So again, hearing this just really kind of filled a little bit of that void for me. It kind of sp- spoke to that since I'm not in a place where I can do that. So thank you for that. It's to me, that's the song thanks. of the year, man. I'm just thanks for, blown uh, away. Thanks for sharing that. And, uh, yeah, and I'm looking forward to that album. Thanks, man. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll be tracking starting next week, but I don't know what'll happen in terms of. I mean, we're not a <laughs> we're not really a functioning band these days, so we'll we'll see when it comes out. But yeah, it was it wasn't the easiest thing to get to finish this guitar. It was not the easiest thing. It took a lot of juggling, and um, my brother's like never stopped being on lockdown. You know yeah, what I mean? he's like very very cautious. Like getting him in the studio to do, do some drum parts was difficult. And in fact, it got to the point where there was a couple songs that needed drum parts at the end and I ended up doing them. Really? And I did the drums on Lucky and I did the drums on If I Woke Up because he just wouldn't come out to the studio and just didn't have time with his two kids. And he did all the other drums on the album. But yeah, it was like, it was tricky. We're not like a functioning band. So it was, yeah. it was pretty much me trying to get sessions together for for our bandmates and um at the, uh, the last month or so like october was a lot of that like setting up sessions for my bandmates to do things individually so then we could piece it together and actually baz who who did the um symphonic version of the decline yeah he, he mixed the whole album yeah i saw that so he really helped me put it all together He's amazing. He really is fucking brilliant. So. I do want to touch on Baz, but I first was glad that you mentioned David because when Consider It a Win came on, I was like, oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the perfect second track because it really just picks it up, kind of jump starts the energy. And who's playing the bass on that song? Because, oh my God, they're crushing That's John Conine, who, uh, yeah, right? He murdered that. He, that's John Conan who recorded the record. Okay, okay. Um, I got to give a huge shout out to John Conan. He is just the most patient human being. <laughs> <laughs> He'll just like smile when I'm doing like, like okay, I didn't, write, I didn't quite capture the energy. He's like, you played that perfectly. And he's like, just takes little notes. <laughs> like I remember he, I probably wouldn't have picked the version of Reminders that he picked. He's like, no, you played it perfectly the, the second time mm. live with no overdubs. He's like, this is the version I like. Like, so he helped me produce as well to some degree. He's a real patient, awesome dude. And we, his studio, you know, he he has like an analog tape studio, but everything's flowing into Pro Tools. But he's got all types of cool analog equipment. I think the warmth of that is captured on on this record as well. So, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I I do want to talk about some of the instrumentation because. You know, I talk about the energy with the full band and the drums and everything, but conversely, mm-hmm. Teach a Rat to Fish is like double-time energetic rapping with no drums. Mm-hmm. And very, you know, we talked about Beach Boys a little bit. It's got a little bit of that quality or a little bit Beatles-esque quality of the way that you've got all these really pretty layers in the background, but it's very mellow compared to what you're doing, you know. So there's a contrast yeah. in energy I like. 
Thank you. Yeah, it's kind of like chamber rap or some shit. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I wanted the lyrics to really stand out. You know, sometimes it helps when there's no drums. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that song has vibraphone, accordion, banjo, cello, viola, piano. Jeez. And rap. It's just and gorgeous. Guitar, but- that kind of instrumentation on some of these songs, it reminds me of my friend Leo London, who was one of the first people that I sent 2020 BC to uh, when it came out, because he's a brilliant songwriter. He draws a lot of influence from you know that era in the 60s, and he's not really a, a rap dude, but I was like, dude, if anyone appreciates the songwriting, like the, the craft in this song, like you're going to love it, and he was just floored. Um, really, cool. So that's when I cool. when I heard the rest of the album, I was like, "Oh damn, he's gonna like this." I think so. I, I sent him a link to it. Oh, that's cool. I you know I just found out Laura Jane Grace really liked the record. Oh wow, the, uh, 2020 BC. That's great. I played it on, on her. Yeah, I was I was pretty uh, psyched to hear that. She had some nice things to say about it. That's awesome, man. Um, and Chuck D retweeted it too. Fuck yeah! <laughs> so it's just a funny combo. It's like our little both worlds popping up punk worlds. Kind yeah, of writing, you know? that's amazing, man. And as punk rappers as ourselves, you know, it's like it's kind of the coolest shit. Yeah, that's as good as it gets, man. To have it <laughs> truly appreciated by both sides, you know, it's like okay, I'm doing something right. And it's funny because I talk to Fat Mike like every day, but he's just like, yeah. Record sounds good, man. <laughs> he won't say anything more. <laughs> He's like, let's focus on the other shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So funny. Well, you mentioned Baz, and we had talked a little bit about you spending time with Fat Mike and I believe Sam from Get Dead. Yeah. I'm just curious what you've got cooking with the Fat Camp, if there's anything you can talk about there. Well, I would love to go to Fat Camp. That was one of the first things I told <laughs> Fat Mike. I was like, dude, if, if you're going to make me a rock star, send me to Fat Camp ASAP. <laughs> uh, he's like, no, why is, we got to finish this record. <laughs> why is there not a comp called something about Fat Camp? Like, they got all those fat names. It's the most obvious one. That's, I mean, I literally want to go to Fat Camp. Like, give me a place where I could just, like, I don't know, do yoga every day or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, not eat carbs. <laughs> no, but uh, I'm just gonna say it now. We're, we started a new band called the Co-Defendants. Mm-hmm. It's me and Sam and Fat Mike. Honestly, nice. It's mainly me and Sam, but like Fat Mike's really, really involved in it. Baz has been really involved. I mean, he's helped us create our first songs. Um, but it's basically me and Sam from Get Dead, and um, and yeah, we'll see a lot more in the next year. I saw that Henri was at at least one of those sessions. Is that right? Or was that yeah. for something else? <laughs> of course you saw that because Henri puts everything online. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm fucking like, he's <laughs> like, here, here's me eating a cheeseburger. Here's me. <laughs> Shout out to Henri. You yeah, should come um, on the show too, man. Yeah, he's on the first song we did together. and That's rad. Yeah, hopefully... Hopefully that comes out at some point soon. I'm going to be out there again at some point this month. And yeah, we have a bunch of demos and stuff. I don't know what's going to survive. I don't know what's not. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. It's cool. And I really think I wouldn't have finished This Guitar Was Stolen if it wasn't for Sam. And we just kind of went into this crazy creative space where 
we were just writing like fucking it was almost like writing club or something yeah <laughs> like, like he just pushed me to to write and i pushed him to write and we were just inspiring one another and fat mike as well he kind of like he came with risks or ideas or changes and we just like kick it and and bounce ideas off of one another and it's still so early it's hard to say but um yeah some pretty cool shit's coming out that's exciting man i'm probably not even supposed to tell you honestly yeah well (laughs) you're telling everyone at this point so i can cut it out if you want (laughs) fuck kate (laughs) (laughs) all right well the last thing that i wanted to ask about is the closing track on this new album it's called lucky to know you which i've only got through the whole album twice so far because like i said i i had to kind of brush up yesterday on everything that's a short song it's like a minute and a half and in no time i felt myself choking up hearing it the first time i think i'm probably assigning you know meaning from my own life in the way that we do when we hear an emotional song you know it all hits us for different reasons can you tell me what that song means to you yeah um yeah that one was uh I remember I picked up, so I bought my nephew a little ass guitar for Christmas when he was way too young for it. He's only four right now. And I got him this little guitar, and I remember just picking it up one day and just playing, like, the C and the F. And just writing this song. And I think specifically I was talking about my best friend from childhood, uh, John Nagel, who, you know, losing so many people over the years, like, it's hard to say. I mean, it's about everybody. Yeah. But I think at the time, it was me still processing that death and coming to terms with the fact, you know, and it's about the stages of grief, really simply. It's like when the anger flushes out my system and denial finally walks out the room, you know, it's like you're coming through these stages of grief. Yeah. I was left alone with my thoughts, you know, all these thoughts, processing thoughts. And I realized... I'd never be me without you. That yeah. Even your death day, your death day even created me. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. Even your death is um, created me. So thank you for creating me. And so it's like to everyone we lost that helped create us, you know? Well, it's very, very powerful. It's a perfect ending to this record. I, I remember when I, when I first downloaded it and I looked at the track list, I'm like, how the hell are you not closing with 2020 BC? What's going to, how could you follow that? Right. But when you close with, (laughs) you close with this, that again, just glancing at the tracks and their links and whatever, I was like, well, that seems like it'd be more of an intro. Right. But Oh my God, it just, it's the perfect, it's the perfect ending. That's funny. You mentioned that. I thought it was the intro for a long time. Here's what changed my mind about that. Cause even John Conine who recorded this album, Steve Hill as well helped out in the studio but John Conine, who played bass in some songs and recorded the album, he called 2020 BC last song. He's like, yeah. it's the last song. There's yeah. no way. It's not. And uh, I was listening, and I was thinking about Neutral Milk Hotels and the Airplane Over the Sea. Yeah. And I was thinking about the song Oh Comely. And I was thinking about how Jeff just decides to put that song in the middle of the album. Yes. This long-ass, the longest song probably he's ever written, right? And how well that works because it's a breather and it breaks an album in two yeah. in a way that it makes it more of this journey. Um, when I started 
rethinking 2020 BC as a middle song. Then I started rethinking everything. I was like, I like the way long shot starts. It starts like, it feels like an intro, like in its way that, it, I don't know. Yeah, there's an immediacy I, for that song, for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's an immediacy. It's a great intro song because it's basically saying, as difficult as this road is, I'm going to keep going, even if it's fucking illogical and I'm hurting myself in the process. Yeah. Here we go. And then Lucky is like, thank you. Thank you, everybody. And like, it, feel, it felt like a really powerful, like, outro. And I came together. It was really difficult to come up with the, with the track listing. And I actually cut two or three songs. Really? So um, those might be given out to people who have the trilogy or they might come out in some way or another. The sequencing is admirable here because, again, you're juggling a lot of of different content, lengths, sonic palette instrumentation, and for a couple of albums that were getting longer and longer, a 10-song record feels really perfect right now. I mean, I talked about this with Abilities on the last... Uh, second to last episode, there is a certain beauty to leaving people wanting more. And when you've said what you're here to say, then okay, well, maybe these don't need to be there, you know? Yeah, and it's like, I like those other songs. I think they're definitely keepers for something else, but they just didn't need to be here. Yeah. And um, I mean, it took a lot of like listening, long walks, reordering, and. Um, but yeah, I eventually was like, this is it. This is it. So, And I probably only decided that like a month ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's how it goes, man. The final stages is, uh, is all about deciding, you know, what version of this that people are going to consume, you know, because it's been this yeah. big, messy thing in our head up until this point where now it's a real thing. Okay. So how, yeah, what's it going to look I, like? And I kind of love the fact that nobody real, aside from Baz and Sam, maybe a little bit, aside from a couple people, nobody really had heard any other version of this. Yeah, It just kind of came out exactly how it was supposed to. It wasn't like demos were floating around or whatever, you know, it was like, it's just it. It's just it. There's something really cool about that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not questioning myself anymore. <laughs> So now that it is out, you mentioned that eventually we'll be able to get our hands on a real copy of this record. Yeah, yeah. I struggled with that. I was talking to Soul about that, actually, like not too long ago. I was kind of like, damn, should I put a pre-order up? I think people are going to want the vinyl, but I don't want them waiting a year because, as you know, vinyl yeah. is just taking like eight to nine months to press right now. And we didn't have the, we don't have all the artwork done for the insert. So I was like, this is going to take fucking 12 months, basically. And I don't want to make people wait that long. I'd rather just like put it out now. Hopefully people like it or love it and get the vinyl made and get the CDs made with, with time and put them out online when they're done and in my hands, you know, it's kind of my plan. Okay. Uh, yeah, I felt like I kind of had to ask that in. I had to work that in in some way because the most recent song that I wrote is kind of about the deterioration of the music industry and how it's really common now to drop a surprise album and then so everyone who listens to your shit for free gets it, but the people who want to pay money and get the real thing and and pre-order it don't get it for six months, like you said. And so, yeah, 
through this conversation, I understand the significance of the date, the urgency of the songs. I've got enough context here to kind of get the decision here, but that was something that always gets me as like a physical media dude. Like, I can't tell you any other time that I just paid to download someone's digital album, <laughs> but I did for this because I liked it, you know. Oh, thank but, you. You didn't have to, you know, like if you could have streamed it and, you know, that's why I made it free as well. I was like, hopefully you guys like it. You can have it free. Thank you. If you, for everyone who donated, I'm fucking amazed, honestly. But an amazing reaction to it already but i didn't expect that at all and i just wanted it out immediately i just felt like it's it felt like an urgent project for me to get out yeah and for me to wait on the physicals would just be it would be a lot um a lot of waiting and um yeah i've never done a record like that as you know i've always like planned a lot ahead of schedule but um yeah, well i love the, the songs man attempt so. It's very, very, very well done. I, I love these songs. Congratulations. Thanks, Sam. And yeah. Congratulations on everything you've been doing too. Your books, like everything you've been, you've just been, you're a workhorse. It's like, I love seeing it. So thank you, man. Looking forward to the, to the hardcore record. All right. That is our show. Thank you guys so much for listening and huge thanks to Chesky for being my final guest of the year. I do want to just quickly apologize. It was supposed to air last week. We got a little bit off schedule just for everything going on around the holidays. So my bad on that. Also, we addressed off air, but both Chesky and I had just woke up for this appointment. So started out a little bit sleepy, but I think we got some great content, especially talking about this song, 2020 BC. This is Chesky.
much history manipulated by mythology Screaming, screaming, 
Logic, superstition, gift of gab. My name is Sammy Warmhands, and these are just a few of the iconic voices featured on my double album, Figures of Speech, available now at take92.com and strangefamous.com. Do you miss live music and going on tour? Check out my new book, How to Ruin Your Life, The Daily Grind of a DIY Tour. The book chronicles nearly a decade of underground tours with artists like DJ Abilities and Christoph Crane. With a foreword by Carnage the Executioner, this book is a must-have for rap fans who want to peek behind the scenes. The book is available now at Take92.com and StrangeFamous.com. For even more behind-the-scenes content, subscribe to the Take92 podcast for interviews with artists from Sage Francis to Jello Biafra. This is Sammy Warmhands from Crush Kill Recordings and Take92 Music. <laughs>